Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmaui, and I'm joined by uh, one member of the regular cast and crew, Alistair Roberts, as well as by a very special guest, uh, Dr. Vern Poitras, a professor of New Testament interpretation at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philly, and the author of many, many books, holder of many, many degrees, uh, polymath and uh, scholar, and so we're very excited to have him on today to talk about his latest book, Theophany, A Biblical Theology of God's Appearing, that's uh, going to be out with Crossway very shortly. So we're really excited to do that. So thanks for coming on the show today, Dr. Poitras. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Very excited. And for the subject, uh, because it's a biblical theological dive. I'm just going to hand that over to Alistair to get us going. So, uh, Al, why don't you go go ahead and, and uh, get us into this conversation. Thanks, Derek. Dr. Poitras, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. I was wondering, just for the sake of listeners who don't know what a theophany is, how would you define the term theophany, and can you give us a few examples of theophanies in the Bible? Uh, well, a theophany is an appearance of God, uh, and that means that God comes to meet somebody, and there are visual phenomena that um, mediate his presence to that person. It's easier to think in terms of particular examples. The most famous theophany in the Old Testament is the Mount Sinai theophany, where God comes down, and there's a thunder and lightning and a loud voice, and then he speaks from the cloud at the top of the Mount Sinai. That, but that's only one instance. Uh, there's a, a big theophany in Ezekiel 1, where Ezekiel sees uh, living creatures and uh, a human figure seated on a throne. And the more you read the Old Testament, you more looking for these things. You, there are actually quite a few. Um, Daniel sees a theophany in Daniel 7, where there's a... The, the Ancient of Days is seated on his throne, and there are thousands of angels around him. So there are uh, those instances, and I should say also that they are foreshadowings. They are uh, anticipations of the coming of Christ, because he's the permanent appearance of God in visible form. And that gives a added significance, I believe, once we understand that the plan of God from the uh, the early days was that Christ should come, and these are prefigure uh, instances of prefigures of the uh, coming of Christ. So there's been a lot of debate on the particular question of whether we should see some of these events as appearances of Christ himself in the Old Testament. Um, so, for instance, many people have argued that the angel of the Lord that appears to um, certain of the patriarchs and also various other characters within the Old Testament narrative, um, such as Joshua, the commander of the army, army of the Lord, or um, the wife of Manoah, these sorts of figures um, are a visual manifestation of the Son in his pre-incarnate state. Is that a helpful way to look at these events, or would you disagree with such a reading? And if it is a pre-incarnate appearing, how should we understand it? Right. I think it is, for the most part, helpful. 
But the the phrase, the angel of the Lord, occurs in Luke 1 with respect to um, the angel Gabriel, who is an angel and uh, is distinct from the divine son. So the phrase, the angel of the Lord, and the word angel in Hebrew is originally messenger. It's a function word that shows what this personage is doing. He's bearing the message of God himself. Well, that means that just looking at the phrase, you can't necessarily tell. It could be that the divine son, who came incarnate in the New Testament, he's already existing in the Old Testament, it may be that he's the messenger, but we also know, as is in this New Testament example, that angels, what we know as the spirit beings uh, who serve God, that they can be messengers as well. It's a little confusing because the word angel is the normal translation uh, of this word. But, for instance, in um, Haggai, you have a discussion of the fact that Haggai is the messenger of the Lord. It's the same word. And in Malachi 3, John the Baptist, uh, well, it's prophetic, uh, looking forward to the coming of John the Baptist, he's called a messenger. So that just shows it could be a human messenger in these cases I just mentioned. It could be an angelic messenger, what we know of as an angel, and it could be the divine son. Now, what that means is that in any particular case, you have to look at it and try to assess whether this messenger is given worship or divine honor. If he is, then it's an indication what we've got is God himself appearing in human form. And then that would anticipate the incarnation. Uh, but not all of them are clear. Uh, with the case, uh, let's see, uh, you mentioned uh, Manoah. Uh, they, uh, afterwards, in assessing it, uh, Manoah says, we've seen God. And he, and uh, when he asks the messenger for his name, he says, well, how do, why do you ask for my name? Because it's wonderful or it's beyond understanding. It, that kind of thing uh, seems to indicate that what we've got is an appearance of God himself. So there are instances like that. There are other instances where I don't think we can be certain. In a sense... It does not much matter. I mean, we don't need to know everything to understand here is God coming, either by an angel or by uh, the divine son. And either way, it's anticipatory of the work of Christ, because the angels themselves are doing functions which are not equivalent to that of Christ, but would nevertheless foreshadow some of his work. So in a sense, if you can, we can just relax and say, well, we're not sure in every case, but we see something that nevertheless reminds us of what Christ is going to do in fullness when he comes. You talk in the book about a number of the different events within the New Testament that have a theophanic character to it, so to them. So a number of the events associated with the birth and um, the early years of Christ um, some of the events like the baptism or the transfiguration, um, the crucifixion, 
um, and then the resurrection, ascension. And it seems that this, the reality of theophany is incredibly important for understanding the significance of some of these events. It's within the theophany that the character of um, something like the transfiguration is revealed to us. It's, it's full import and meaning. Likewise, with something like um, the day of Pentecost, the appearance at that point, there are many ways in which that can be seen to allude back to the Old Testament. So whether that's the Christ ascending into heaven and then the Spirit descending upon his successor in, like Elijah and Elisha, or whether it's like Moses and um, ascending on to Mount Sinai and then the um, law being given and the theophanic appearance of God on the mountain. These events stand in the background and they also give a sense of this, just the significance of what's taking place. How do you think that the themes that you've explored in relationship to Theophany help to unlock the story of Christ and the New Testament narrative in particular? Yes, well, <clears throat> I think God builds so often on things in the Old Testament when he's speaking to us in the New Testament. And it's true of theophany, but it's true of other uh, themes like the theme of covenant or the theme of God's kingship and his rule. And Jesus announces the kingdom of God. Well, that is supposed to link us back to the Old Testament promises that God will come as king and bring salvation to his people. So there's things like that, but I believe that theophany, you're right, theophany is one very significant theme and in some respects uh, I think tends to be uh, ignored by modern readers because the, the theophanies in the Old Testament are so, they feel so strange to modern readers that we kind of discount them a little bit and don't realize the degree to which they link forward. You mentioned the Mount Sinai uh, episode, and it's from the mountain, and then Jesus gives a sermon on the mount. I don't think that's an accident that there's a link there, even. It's not as most visible kind of thing, uh, but it's... Uh, you're, to see the voice of Jesus is parallel to the voice of God speaking from Mount Sinai. Uh, the voice from Mount Sinai mostly gives threats and curses because of the holiness of God. Jesus gives blessings, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, that's where he, the Sermon on the Mount starts out, because the time of salvation has come. Or take the transfiguration, a cloud comes and overshadows them. And you're to think of the cloud of theophany in the Old Testament. And then a voice comes out of the cloud. Well, that's like, again, the voice of Mount Sinai or other places there are where God appears in a cloud and speaks to his people. So you're to think of that. But the interesting thing about the... the uh, Transfiguration is Jesus is appearing in glory, is with this bright, uh, uh, his, his face is bright and his clothing is bright. And then the voice from heaven says, Listen to him. Rather than giving a new Ten Commandments or something, uh, it directs the disciples to Jesus, who is now the final manifestation of what happened in the Old Testament. Well, those are just examples, and I think that 
knowing the Old Testament, but knowing this particular theme in the Old Testament helps people to see the depth of what's going on uh, during the life and and death and resurrection of Christ. So with all that, um, the the idea that this is kind of an under underexplored category, I, I I agree. At least in terms of just common discussions about about uh, like long range biblical theology, I, I hear about covenant, I hear about kingdom, I hear about these things. But when you realize that the the whole of Scripture is about um, God's communion with His people, then well, then of course God's appearance must be a dominant note. I mean, he he, he speaks throughout the whole thing, and so um, I just appreciate how how much attention you draw to just how much God appears all over the narrative. Uh, I have a I have two or three questions with this, but I'll start with uh, maybe a silly one. I, I you talked a little bit about the strangeness of the Old Testament, uh, certain texts. And I, I guess that's one of the things that I was striking me as I was reading it. I, I am regularly struck by the ubiquitous weirdness of the Old Testament. It's just a weird, weird book when you start to stare at it closely. And I'm wondering, in preparing this text, in working through these uh, pictures of God appearing, these texts of God appearing, I'm wondering, actually, just what what surprised you? I mean, you've been studying, you've been reading and writing about Scripture for for years, but I'm I'm wondering if if anything just surprised you or grabbed you uh, in this study that maybe you didn't expect to to find or um, feel with a uh, with a new force. I I guess I'm 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 curious about that. As my first question here is, is what actually shocked you when you were preparing the text, or what what grabbed you when you were preparing the text? Yes, well. You're right that I've been thinking about this for years, partly because I've had the responsibility of teaching the book of Revelation, and Revelation has all this imagery, and again, uh, strikes modern readers as a strange book, but it's full of things that are related to theophany. And one of the things that happened to me that I didn't expect was that I... I gained a new understanding of the created world. Hmm. And that's part of this thing. There are these intense appearing instances of appearing of God, like Mount Sinai. But those, uh, those are intense instances of the fact that God is present with his people, even if there's no direct, hmm. uh, special, visible manifestation uh, like the crowd of fire and uh, the pillar of uh, cl- a cloud and fire that accompanied the people. That was a very special <laughs> thing. But once they get into the promised land, that doesn't happen. But they have the tabernacle still, which is a symbol of God's presence. Well, God is present with us through the Holy Spirit when we come to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. That makes us a tw- temple, the glory of God, such as was visible in the Old Testament is actually in us, and we're to reflect the glory of Christ, not by having our faith literally shine, although sometimes when people become Christians it almost seems that way, but that we show the goodness and mercy and character of God in our lives. Now that makes this whole theme much more broadly relevant. But it's also, it became relevant to me because I began to see that every thunderstorm, you know, Mount Sinai, it's worth 
saying is unique, right? In the whole history of the world, there was nothing Mm -hmm. like it. But every thunderstorm on a lesser level is a display of the power of God and even of the terror of God because it is a, it, you, it presses you when it's, it's near to you of just how powerful God is. Well, the, the advent of a kind of materialistic view of the created order tends to sap out our sense of how much creation is testifying to the power and glory and uh, infinity of God. So that waked up in me at a certain point when I was thinking about these things, and I thought the tree of life is a very special tree in the whole history of the world, and yet every tree is a display reflecting the life-giving power of God, and in its beauty reflects the beauty of God. So things like that began to happen, and I wanted other people to understand, just open your eyes, see what's there. It's always been there, but, but as I say, it tends to be sapped out of us, the awareness of these things, by a culture that, that uh, says, oh, it's just matter in motion. One of the things that you bring across within the book, I've I found this that particular theme incredibly helpful within your book. And you talk about some of the analogies that exist within the world between God's rule in the heavens, God's rule over the heavenly court and over the universe, and then humanity's rule on the earth and um, elements such as the temple and this sort of thing. And seeing the world as a realm of this lively and dramatic realm where the heavens manifest an analogy with um, the higher heavens and these sorts of things. How can we recover that way of seeing the world within a very scientific and materialistic age? And I know you've done a lot of work in the area of um, thinking about a Christian approach to science. How can we have a scientific approach to the world while still maintaining something of this, um, for want of a better word, a phenomenological appreciation of humanity's place at home within the creation as God's theater? Yeah, it's a good question because I think we we have constantly to um, take a distance from a world around us which is pressuring us. But actually the pressure is not from science as it ought to be <laughs> because we're, science as it ought to be is really thinking God's thoughts after him, to try to explore his ways. And the early scientists, people like uh, Copernicus and and uh, Kepler and uh, Sir Isaac Newton, they understood that they were exploring the mind of God. They were trying to think his thoughts on a creaturely level. Uh, but that's... Uh, that's largely disappeared, but I think recovering it, it, the starting point is knowing God in Christ and understanding the personal character of God. So what you see in science is manifestations of God's faithfulness, of how uh, consistent he is in governing the world. Some, some things like uh, Newton's Law of Gravitation, it's a wonderful summary of how God governs the planets and uh, um, moving projectiles and things, that, to understand, to see the personal character of God in that doesn't depreciate science, but in a sense gives it deeper meaning, gives us motivation. And uh, 
I fear that science in a secular world, a lot of the motivation is taken out. People grow up, you know, and there is some children are fascinated by ants or by bugs or by growing plants, you know, and they just, they're drawn into that. Why are they drawn into it? Because they're seeing the glory of God, even if they don't articulate it, and even if they are not believers and there's a certain amount of suppression of it, that's the motivation for science. And if if it's just uh, a kind of a human ego trip of seeing, you know, how much I can understand, and then then it just distort, distorts the whole thing. So I, I would put science in there, but I would say also that's only one dimension, kind of the secret things of how cells operate in the uh, leaves and the trunks of trees. That's fascinating in its own right. But just look at the tree and appreciate it. That's part of what God has given us, too. And it's as if the modern materialistic philosophy has said, once you've understand the the matter in motion, that's all there is to understand. But that's not true, right? The, there's there's multi dimensions to the world that God has given us, and the things that are immediately apparent to our eyes are among the most fascinating of all. <laughs> so, so I'd say you know let's recover that as well as affirm, of course, because it's a God-made world, it's part of our calling uh, to, uh, particularly those gifted in it, it's part of their calling to explore how God is governing the world in these minute and uh, specialized ways. On that related subject, um, I'm going to take a bit of a left turn here. Um, talk about the exploring the mind of God in that regard. Um, one question that struck me as I was reading a bit, especially in the storm cloud theophanies, you bring to bring to light the issue of, of you know, every thunderstorm now being a testimony to, uh, the, the ferocity, the power, the, the glory of God. Um, the bit of reading I've done on theophany when it comes to, uh, storm clouds, uh, raises the issue of accommodation and, and, uh, and cultural, um, cultural accommodation and cultural analogy and so forth in biblical revelation. And so I'm wondering what you, what you make of this. So I know that, um, some of the ancient Near Eastern gods from the surrounding cultures were associated with, you know, the storm, the storm clouds like Baal, you know, riding, riding the storms and being the storm God. Um, and one of the arguments is that, uh, biblical writers took and appropriated, uh, common ancient Near Eastern divine imagery as a way of kind of polemically, um, saying, no, no, Yahweh, Yahweh, he, he is actually the storm God. He is actually the, 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 the one who controls these things. Um, and I'm wondering how you, and how you, how you parse that relationship, whether or not there, you, you see that as a, as, um, just, just that a, a polemical, a polemical reappropriation or a, a clarification or, um, kind of just seeing that as a way that humans, um, really do respond to divine glory, but wrongly. Uh, I, so I'm wondering how you incorporate an understanding of some of those ancient Near Eastern parallels that may pop up in, in our understanding of theophany, uh, but, but seeing them as truly uh, revelatory of God's desire to reveal himself to us 
So, yeah, I think that's an excellent question. If I may, uh, I think it helps to step by, back just a bit. Uh, I've got a book, Redeeming Sociology, which talks about how we look at culture, because the mm-hmm. standard way of looking at it is it's just there as a human level thing, but that's not right. We're always everybody under the face of the, on the face of the earth. Everybody is living in the presence of God as the creator and providential ruler. And you think of Jesus pointing to the lilies of the field, how they grow, and pointing to water as a source of life, that he's using these things. So we need to start not with culture as if it were an autonomous thing that humans created, but we need to start with the massive revelation of God, not only, of course, in the Bible, and that verbal revelation straightens out our perceptions of what's called general revelation, of revelation in the natural world, but also even in human society. Though human society is perverted by sin, we cannot escape being in the image of God. So then you go with that framework and you look at this material about Baal, the, the false god of the that that, uh, Israelites were tempted to, what's going on there is a reaction to general revelation, that people see their own dependence on rains and and agriculture, uh, but they pervert it rather than worshiping the true God and uh, asking him, uh, thanking him and asking him for the blessings of rain and crops. They pervert it into a polytheistic context. It's what... Paul talks about in Romans 1, too, that they they suppress the knowledge of the true God and they replace it with false gods. So what's happening is still they can't escape this testimony, but they mess it up in their own reasoning. And when God comes with the Old Testament, he, he rectifies the thing by turning it back around to what it should have been their understanding all along. So I believe that God does, uh, in the Old Testament, sometimes allude to things in the other polytheistic cultures, but it's in order to uh, uh, rectify what has been counterfeited. And, And it's basically, in the end, it's a satanic counterfeit, because Satan corrupts it's people are guilty themselves, but also Satan is in there in false religions, and he corrupts the, the true knowledge that comes to people all over the world through uh, who they are and through general revelation. So I think once we do that, then the material in the Old Testament that interacts with the ancient Near East is no longer felt to be some kind of embarrassment of, oh, you know, God is just using stuff out of the culture, and uh, but it's not to be taken seriously. It is very serious, because mm-hmm. it's, it's against the background of general revelation, which these other cultures also can't escape. That's very helpful. Thank you for that. Alistair, you have a question? I'll be interested to hear your thoughts. You talk a lot about the um, triad of covenant, kingdom, and presence, and develop that in a number of different ways and unpack just its significance. And would you be able to just briefly lay out the 
way that this um, triad can help us to understand biblical themes and just how it relates to the theme of theophany in particular? Right. Uh, good question. Uh, I, uh, I was uh, focusing on the theme of theophany, and as I think I've already said, uh, the larger theme of which that is an intensive instance is the theme of presence of God. Mm-hmm. And that theme is just from one end of the Bible to the other. It's uh, not necessarily uh, focused on as much, but it's, ju- it's a very central and powerful theme. And you end up in Revelation, of course, with the, they shall see his face. The servants of God shall see his face. They shall worship him, shall see his face. That's communion with God. It's supremely intense presence of God. And that's what we hope for, and we experience his presence through the indwelling Holy Spirit and through prayer and through our communion with God, even now. So all those things are true, and so I wanted to do theophany in a way that would show people, even though you don't have every day of your life a special kind of appearance of an angel or something, uh, you don't need that because you have the essence of it in the presence of God through his word, uh, through the uh, coming of the Holy Spirit. And I should say that's, that's assuming that you're a Christian believer. It's the, only the Christian believer who has the Holy Spirit indwelling him in this special, uh, intense, and salvific way. And that's another thing where, you know, we need to reckon with that rather than taking it for granted. So there's all those things. But to get back to your question, I wanted to look at the theme of the presence of God, but I'm convinced that it interlocks with other major themes that people are perhaps more familiar with. And even if they haven't thought about them, they need to be seen as reinforcing the theme of the presence of God. So one of those is covenant, and one of those is kingship. And together, actually, those correlate, I think, with prophet, king, and priest. So the prophet brings the word of God. Well, that's embodied in covenant, right? The covenants are the main speeches that God gives to his people that are supposed to be permanently uh, with us and that we come back to again and again. And then kingship, of course, it's God's kingship that is behind human kings in the Old Testament. They're to model his kingship. They often fail to do it. And then the presence of God, that's related to the priesthood, because the priesthood is, among other things, is mediating the presence of God in the temple, for example, where God is represented as intensively present, and but he's holy, so you can't go in, right? So the priest is... is uh, made symbolically holy so that he represents what is to come to pass in Christ. Now, Christ is the final prophet, king, and priest. And that's actually, people have understood that for centuries. It's gotten into some of the catechisms of the church, uh, prophet, king, and priest. But that's a fulfillment of these three gigantic themes in the Bible of covenant, kingship, and presence. The, the themes also interlock, because if God speaks to you in covenant, his speech is a form of his presence. 
and his speech rules over you, if you pay attention to his commands, right, then that's, uh, that's altering you, and it's a form of his uh, rule and power in you, and the word comes with power. So those three things are not three separate things, as if we just had something like, uh, you know, three um, uh, pieces of wood in a row, but they come together. When you've got one, you've got the others, and that means that each of them helps us to enrich our understanding of what God is doing when one of the other themes is prominent. So, um, for instance, with... Uh, let's say when David is appointed as king, right? What's visible there is that he's going to be a king after God's own heart. So he's going to embody the kingship of God. How is he going to do that? Well, through him, God, or, uh, people under his rule are going to experience God's blessing in his presence through David's rule. So insofar as it's good, right? Uh, and at the same time, they're going to be blessed by his wisdom. That comes out more with Solomon, right? Because Solomon makes these wise decisions. Where does wisdom come from? It comes from God. So it's also a form of God's presence. So looking at these things together, you begin to see that uh, any time that one of them is there, it's richer than what's immediately visible. You talk about the way in which um, certain theophanies lead to the establishment or institution of something that in some sense might continue them. So for instance, the um, events on Mount Sinai are leading to the giving of the law and the tablets. Is there a sense in which as Christians, we have a continuing sort, a continuing reality resulting from um, a theophanic inauguration, such as at Pentecost and things like that? How should we, think about theophany within the life of the church. So, for instance, something like baptism or the Lord's Supper or the reading of Scripture, do these have a theophanic character to them in any sense? Uh, yes, I, I think in a subordinate way, right? Not to, uh, not to be, get confused, the, the uh, theophanies in the narrow sense, there's some special... Uh, um, kind of miraculous even visible component to them but you're right that pentecost though it's miraculous and though there's tongues of fire that are very special thing it's the inauguration of a whole period where it's understood that the holy spirit then comes on each individual and is present with each church and the the meeting of the church and then that extends out to the things that are done in the church meeting. So when the scripture is read or when it's proclaimed, God is speaking. It still has to be uh, sifted, of course. Uh, the Bereans have to check out whether what is said is consistent with uh, the word of God that they already have. And, and that's true of our modern preaching. And then there's the reading of the word, but in both of those cases, God is not, is present and is speaking. And then, when we are uh, responding in singing, also there's a passage in Hebrews two 
12, where it indicates that Christ is singing in the congregation. So through the Spirit, he's singing with us, and we're addressing one another with spiritual power and the presence of this Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is present in the church as well as in uh, by indwelling each individual. And that extends, I think, then to the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are visible signs. They're not miraculous signs, but they are do bring, bring to visibility this presence of God that uh, God has promised uh, in the New Covenant. On this note, one of the things that strikes me with the message of theophany and of divine appearance, I think back on the, the story of the burning bush, Right, the very, it's a very clear instance of, you know, if there's any theophany, that's a theophany. And you've got this instance where the Holy One, you know, God reveals himself in holiness. But at the same time, he is um, there, present. And so, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just asking you to kind of reflect a bit on it's kind of that paradox of uh, God's appearing as the appearing of the utterly transcendent, unique one who far transcends all things, but, but, but specifically present with those things as the one who cannot be fully identified with those things. It can't be identified at all with those things. So I was just the, 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 the undercurrent of holiness and theophany, um, cause you can imagine a, a conception of holiness of divine uniqueness and transcendence, which would rule out, theophany entirely. God is so other. He's he's completely distant. Um, so I was just wondering if you had, I don't know, a, a line of thought there. Um, the holiness is on my mind particularly. So Yes. Uh, well, I think there has been, unfortunately, a strain of thinking that's crept into the church, and it's uh, partly through uh, Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite, it's uh, brought in a mysticism that uh, emphasized the uh, total inaccessibility of God, that tried to honor God by uh, emphasizing his otherness. And the trouble with that, it wasn't biblically based, <laughs> but it crept into the church. It can feel honoring to God. But in the end, we we are supposed to uh, listen to what God has actually revealed about himself uh, in the scripture, and in the scripture he shows that his holiness and his exaltedness is actually the basis for his control over the media and his ability to come and meet people. So I think there's no innate tension we may feel there's a tension, but that's our problem. There's no innate tension between God's exaltedness and his absoluteness on the one hand and his coming to be present is precisely because he is infinitely able to do everything that he wishes that he can come and use created media. It's things that he himself has created, right? So the fire, for instance, as a physical and visual phenomenon in a bush, that is not identical with God. We respect the creator-creature distinction. But because God is Lord and is the absolute and holy God, 
he is fully able and capable and does use those media in a very unusual way, right? That shows his control and power, too, that the bush is not consumed. He uses those things precisely to manifest himself and to come near to us. So it's, and over and over again, the temptation of sinful human beings is to climb up to God, to say, somehow I've got to go through a lot of hoops, whether intellectually, right, in my conception, or through some kind of ascetic discipline. I've got to do all kinds of things if I'm ever going to get up to the majesty of who God is. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is about God coming to us, <laughs> right? Because of his great power, but also because of his great mercy and the uh, incarnation of Christ in his life on earth is this supreme manifestation of the reality of what that means. You don't have to go up to heaven because Christ has come down to the earth. You know, and now he comes down. He is, of course, exalted at the right hand of the Father, but through the Holy Spirit, he still comes down and meets us right where we are. We don't climb up to heaven. You see, that's salvation by works in the end, right? So we don't do that. He unites us to himself by his grace, and through that union, we are exalted to heaven. We are seated uh, with Christ in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians 2, 6. So I think the central realities of how we're saved, the good news of what Christ has done, are really deeply related to our perception of what's happening in theophany, that, that, that all the theophanies are about God coming to us and the fact that he's fully able to do that. Uh, he's, he, there's nothing in him that's some kind of tension, you know, that he has to protect himself or his own being by not... Uh, coming and acting in the world. That's nonsense, he's, because he's, he's, he is who he is, and uh, there's no threat from the creature that can overthrow his rule. Seems to be in a number of the theophanies that we have in the Old Testament, there are, and even within the New, there's a theme simultaneously with appearing, there is veiling. So the cloud is an appearance, but it's simultaneously availing. Or the tabernacle is a manifestation of God's presence in the midst of the company of his people. But at the same time, it is surrounded by veils. And there is God coming near to us, but also veiling himself so that we can come near to him. Um, I'd be interested to hear some of your thoughts on the way that plays out, because it's an interesting... um, interplay of those two themes, I think. It is. I think it's exactly right. A cloud both reveals and conceals, because you can't see into it most of the time. And the tabernacle curtains are separations, and nobody except the high priest can go into the inner room, and that only once a year. So there are these lessons, and of course Hebrews takes up on the lessons of that structure to stress the fact that Sin separates us from God, right? And the the people at Mount Sinai are told, don't go, don't touch the mountain. If even an animal touches a mountain, it must be killed. There's the picture of holiness and also the problem of sin. So that's all the way through the Old Testament. And, of course, that 
throws light on the glory of what Christ has come and what he's done, that he's reconciled us to God. I do think it's important that we draw a line clearly in our minds between sin and finiteness. And people I see out in the world are all the time getting confused about that. They think their problem is that they're finite, that they're not God, the infinite. That's not their problem. Their problem is sin. It's a personal thing. It's an ethical thing. It's not the metaphysical status we have as human beings. And that's all related to theophany because I think these barrier elements are there because of sin. There is, in a sense, you know, even at the consummation where sin is completely gone, there's still a distinction between creator and creature. We, we don't believe in a kind of Hindu or Buddhist absorption into the one where all distinctions of personality are dissolved. We believe that, that God uh, is saving us and not by dissolving our personality, but by redeeming it. And so even at the, uh, through all eternity, there's a distinction between create, creator and creature. But the distinction is not a barrier, right? They shall see his face. They shall worship him and see his face. It's communion with God. And even in this life, Christians who experience some of that, and sometimes more strongly than other, they can understand, I think, that we... we uh, we have a great hope in a communion with God that is real, that is personal, that is intimate, that is strong, that is full of happiness and blessing in the end. There's suffering in this world. It's full of that without destroying us, you know, either as finite creatures or destroying us because of sin. That's the real problem, right? So that's why we have the whole story of redemption and the work of Christ in order that not as finite creatures, but as sinful creatures, as once sinful creatures, right, we may have communion with the holy God. So I think getting getting straight what's the real barrier, <laughs> sin, not finiteness, is a big help here. And theophany, I think, underlines that because it shows that the God of all the universe can come and establish communion with human beings. But it's tricky to do it in the Old Testament because Christ has not yet come. I believe the work of Christ has to be reckoned with beforehand in order that people like Moses, you know, who draws near to God, why didn't he die? And and God has to say, you can't see my face uh, because no one can see my face and live. Well, that's part of this. Even somebody like Moses uh, is still contaminated by, contaminated by sin. And so there is uh, an issue all the way through the Old Testament that I think is never resolved until the coming of Christ. Namely, how are we going to have some final remedy for sin? In that sense, uh, in that sense, the, the biblical theology of God's appearing is... It's really a long-range biblical theology of incarnation, uh, and that's something I really appreciate about this work. Also, it seems a fitting place, uh, you know, meditating on on our on our great hope of of beholding God is probably a fitting place to uh, bring this conversation to a close for now. Uh, but we want to thank you again for coming on, Doctor Poitras. 
this was a, this is really illuminating conversation. So thanks for for joining us today. Well, again, thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed our conversation. And uh, again, if you've been for our listeners, uh, the book is Theophany: A Biblical Theology of God's Appearing Out with Crossway. Um, really great piece of work. Uh, will really enrich uh, your your reading of the whole of Scripture. So we'd encourage you. To, Go ahead and check that out if any of this has has been helpful to you. Uh, But for now, thanks for listening, and uh, we will catch you next episode. Mm